The passage before us is 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you would open there, we'll be reading verses 1 to 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Of course, this is the most important part of our service because it's where we hear God's word. And so would you please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we always need to be shaped by your word. We need your word guiding our thoughts and our hearts. So we pray right now that your spirit would use your word to make us more like you and to make our church more like the church you want it to be. We pray in Christ's name, amen. In 2013, just a few months after I came to Maple Avenue, I asked the congregation to delay the selection of new elders for one year. Now, I didn't do that because I so loved the current elders at that time and didn't want to tamper with the chemistry, though I did love them and I had forged a tight bond. I asked for the delay because... The selection of elders is so important. As a pastor, it's vitally important that I lead as part of a team. I have weaknesses and blind spots, as does every man, which is why God designed a team of men to be leading the church. But that doesn't mean we need just any man. It makes me think of my Husqvarna chainsaw that I got. It was a good chainsaw, well-built, built to last. And, uh, of course, those, that chainsaw is a two-cycle chainsaw, which many of you know exactly what that means. It requires a certain mix of oil and gas to keep it running well. And I knew that, but I wasn't sure that the ratio of oil to gas, getting it exactly right, was all that important. 
So I would mix my oil and gas and put it in the Husqvarna, and eventually I would pull it and it wouldn't start. And I brought it to get it repaired, and sure enough, I had totaled my chainsaw by putting the wrong mix in. It wasn't that what I was putting into it was bad in any way. A certain ratio, every engine needs a different ratio. The problem was that I wasn't putting in the right ratio designed for that engine. You can't just put anything into our chainsaw, even if it's something good. We need to put into the chainsaw what was designed to go into the chainsaw. And so, when we look to the scriptures, we need to make sure that what we're putting, the men we're putting into an office like this are the men that God has designed to be in the office of elder. Now, our, our Bible teaches us many grand truths, like the fact that we are saved not by our works, but by grace as a gift of God. But if we're going to trust the Bible in such grand things as how we can be right with God, we should also be willing to look at it and trust it in seemingly smaller things like who should lead the church. God's telling us what kind of gas we need in our chainsaw. Now he lays out the qualifications for elders or overseers not once but twice. And each time in exacting detail, once here in 1 Timothy, and then also in Titus chapter 1. Back in 2013, I felt that it was critical that our church have a process so that we could exercise due diligence to make sure any men who came on as elders met these biblical qualifications. And looking at these qualifications is what we're going to do for the bulk of our sermon. But before we get into the specifics of the various qualifications, I want to make sure we're all clear on what the role of an elder is. It actually starts to become apparent when you look at the qualification lists. There are all sorts of things an elder is supposed to exhibit. Don Carson, a well-known Canadian theologian, remarks, the remarkable thing about this list is how unremarkable it is. You read through it, they're all traits that Christians should have. But there is one trait that is unique. All the traits are really character traits, except for maybe not a new believer, and then one specifically, right there in, at the end of verse 2, able to teach. Now, 1 Timothy or Titus 1.8, I mean, expands on this just a little bit. So just turn a couple of pages forward to Titus 1.8, or 1.9, I should say. It says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You see, an elder's role is inseparably bound up with his ability to rightly handle God's Word. And I want to explain why. Because the Bible's clear that elders are not the head of this church. I am not the head of this church. It's not up to me 
or the team of elders to set the direction for the church. Christ is the head of the church. He sets the agenda. He tells us the course we should take. And as we've now heard many times since I've been here a long time, Christ is the head of the church and He rules His church through the Word. So if Christ is going to rule His church, we need to find people within the church who are, mo- who are the most capable of handling God's Word and thinking from biblical principle and put those people in a position, excuse me, in a position where they are leading the church. I hope that makes sense. Why is it important that they're able to handle God's word like that? Because we're actually looking to Christ to lead us through his word. Well, the Bible calls elders to do many things. It calls us here in 1 Timothy to care for the church. In 1 Peter, to shepherd the church. It talks about governing and leading the church. But elders do all these things as servants who are trying to help the church follow Christ. And they do that by carefully thinking through what the Bible says and trying to allow the Bible, the Scriptures, to set the course. So an elder's role could be summarized this way, teaching and shepherding in light of God's Word. So an elder gives theological and philosophical direction to the church in a way that mirrors God's Word, teach. And an elder prays and cares for each individual in the church, family, in a way that's informed by God's Word. So shepherding, teaching and shepherding. Now when you start to think about it that way, it becomes clear that elders aren't kind of an elevated body that are above everyone else. We're not on a higher plane. We're just gifted in a specific way that's needed for the church in setting its direction. So we are not setting, uh, we're not selecting the best members of the church or the most important members of the church. Excuse me. That's a big COVID no-no right there. Blowing your nose in front of everybody. We are not selecting the most important members of the church. We are identifying men within the church whom God has gifted in understanding the Bible so that we can allow Christ to rule his church. Now, that's not the same thing as saying we need to find people who are the most dynamic teachers or the people who are most prone to be discussing the Bible. Because elsewhere, the Bible describes men who fancy themselves teachers of the law, but who are actually destructive to the church. It describes men with soaring rhetoric and big followings who are leading some to hell. That's why the bulk of the characteristics here are related to character. While it's true that this list of character traits should should mark every mature Christian, it doesn't mean that they're unimportant. Actually, they're crucial. If a man's life does not adorn his teaching, he ought not be an elder. If his doctrine is not producing within him a Christ-like life, then there is something amiss in his doctrine. At the risk of overstating it, I'll put it like this. For an elder, character is everything. Yes, obviously, he needs to be able to handle the word. 
but that means nothing if character is absent. Now that's not to say an elder needs to be a perfect man. For example, when the scriptures talk about not being a lover of money, it doesn't mean he's never had a covetous thought, but rather that his life is not characterized by a love of money. When it says he's not quick-tempered, it doesn't mean he's never lost his cool, but rather that his life is not characterized by being quick-tempered. It's important to keep in mind. Now, as I mentioned, the Bible lists these qualifications for an elder or overseer in two different places, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. The lists don't exactly match, but they cover the same concepts. So I'm going to walk through the 14 qualities listed in 1 Timothy 3, and they pretty much cover what's in Titus 3, or Titus 1. But I'm going to draw out just at the end one character trait that Titus mentions that I don't think is covered here in 1 Timothy 3. So we're going to go through 15 traits in all. But you'll be able to follow along as you look in your Bible at 1 Timothy 3. I'm just going to go through them in order. And the first character trait there is above reproach. Both Titus and Timothy begin with this general statement. Basically, they're saying there shouldn't be a glaring issue in his life. This is one of the reasons why the elders lean hard on the commendations of the congregation in our selection of elders, or in our, in our bringing to you a selection of elders. Because we want someone who's broadly commended, because that likely means they're one who's broadly understood to be a man of high character. The second trait is husband of one wife. The Greek behind this literally reads, a one-woman man. Now that doesn't immediately disqualify someone who's been divorced any more than it disqualifies someone who, who, who remarried after the death of his spouse. But what it does mean is that this man is exemplary in his love and faithfulness to his wife. Not only in the present, but over the whole course of his Christian life. Whether he is married or single, his life exhibits the high, a high, high value for monogamy. I think of a man... Uh, in Texas named Bubba Williams, who's, who's just a godly, godly man. And he had been, from the moment he became a Christian, he had just shown for, for decades and decades that he was a man of God. And, and I remember him saying, I know I can't be an elder because I've been divorced. Well, he had been divorced prior to him coming to Christ when he was chasing after all sorts of things. They'd remarried during that time. But ever since he was a Christian, he was one who held the value of marriage up more than anyone else. That's what I say when I'm saying it doesn't necessarily mean someone who's never been divorced. But it is talking about someone who embodies that commitment to a spouse. It makes me think of, uh, I don't know if you guys like Johnny Cash. I like Johnny Cash. But he's, he sings a song, Because You're Mine, I Walk the Line. Which is just saying there's all these different temptations in the world. But because I'm committed to you, I walk a certain line. That's what it means to be a one-woman man. The third trait there is sober-minded. Well, the word actually is simply sober. But it's used figure, figuratively to refer to a sobriety of mind. He is not an inebriated thinker. He is clear, balanced, and free from excess of thought. 
or excess in his thoughts. That's what I'm trying to say there. The next trait is uh, self-controlled. And that's fairly simple. He's not controlled by his appetites, his impulses, his emotions. They don't have control over him. Next is respectable. Now the Greek word behind this conveys the sense of orderliness that breeds respect. So he's not a Tasmanian devil vortex of chaos. He's a gentleman, dignified. The next word there is hospitable. And the word literally rendered is loves strangers. Now, it goes more than just being somebody who invites people into your home. This is a characteristic of someone's life. And when I think about this, I think of uh, a man named Stan Dodds, who was an elder in the first church I served at. And this was a man who knew how to set people at ease in whatever context he was in, whether it was in his home, at the church, or even in somebody else's home. He was just going out of his way to look out for other people and set them at ease. He was hospitable. There was a warmth, a generosity of person. Now the next trait at the end of verse 2 there is able to teach. We've talked about this already, but if we're going to understand what Paul's getting after in this qualification, we need to connect it to what we saw him elaborate already in Titus. Able to teach means holding fast to biblical teaching so that you're able to to teach people sound and healthy theology and also expose those who are leading in a different direction. A good question to ask is, who better meets this qualification of able to teach? An electric communicator of a man or a man who isn't compelling in front of people but who knows the word well and can point people, um, point out the error in people's thoughts in private. Clearly the latter, right? It's not talking about an electric communicator. It's somebody who can handle God's word. So we're not looking for the gifted, most gifted communicator in the church. We're looking for someone who really knows his Bible and can think from biblical principle and explain that to others in helpful ways. When he analyzes a situation, he is allowing the Bible to inform how he thinks about it. The eighth trait we see there at the beginning of verse 3 is not a drunkard. Of course, the word underlying here conveys the idea of addiction to alcohol. In our context, I think we can expand beyond alcohol to include other addictive behaviors, addictions to things like illegal drugs or abuse of prescription drugs. The ninth trait is not violent but gentle. You can put it like this. Does he tend to escalate or diffuse a tense situation? Is it easy to get him agitated? Does he bully and get his way by force? Does he have a short fuse? If so, he should not be an elder. Instead, an elder should be tender of love and care. His words should promote healing. There's a great passage that kind of fleshes this out. Just a couple pages ahead in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
You might want to turn there. This is 2 Timothy 2, starting at verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You see what it means? Not violent, but gentle. And of course, that relates to the tenth trait there, not quarrelsome. He's not a man who's always looking for an argument. It's not the kind of man you want in an elder. Plays well with others is key. The ability to cooperate. Now, he may ask hard questions or hold his ground on issues of principle. In other words, this is not saying he needs to be a yes man. We need men of deep conviction who know the word and defend the word and care about leading well. Yet men who are gentle in how they do that, not prone to squabbles. Men who have a big view of God and don't think that they have to win the day. He reminds me of the late J.I. Packer, evangelical statesman, statesman from B.C. I was a young pastor, and uh, he was invited to preach at the church I was at. Now, at that time, uh, we had a little running debate going on amongst the staff. Uh, a few of the men on staff thought pink was a great color for men to wear, and others would ridicule them for wearing pink. So here I was, we had a gathering, J.I. Packer was there, I had my chance to ask him one question. And I said, Dr. Packer, do you think men should wear pink? Now now I know the terribly awkward position I put him in. Is this a joke question? Is this serious? What is the environment I'm speaking into? But J.I. Packer paused, and he thought for a moment, he said, well... I don't think the scriptures forbid it, but I think they advise against it. Which he said with a twinkle in his eye, just diffusing the entire situation. That's how we should be. The eleventh trait is not a lover of money. I think too often in churches, those who have the money are those who are in the positions of influence. Now that's problematic because oftentimes they have the money because they've chased the money. They've squandered time with family, time to disciple others, time to serve their church in pursuit of the next promotion or the next raise. Now, I have known several rich men who were not lovers of money. They were generous and had right priorities with their time. And on the flip side, there are men without a lot of money who love money and wish they had it. 
But the point is, we must look for men who are generous and who obviously have not made material possessions their aim in life. The twelfth trait is an interesting one. Manages his household well. Now this might be the most revealing because it's the one that both Timothy and Titus give the most space to. The culture one creates in his home is the best clue as to the culture one will create in the church. If they can't do it in the smaller sphere, what makes us think they can do it in the larger sphere? You want to think of it like a man cultivating a garden. You give him a small plot of land and ask him to take care of the garden, and then you look at it. Is it, is it wilting or is it thriving? Are his children inclined towards trusting him, following him, or do they distrust him and fear him? The parallel qualification in Titus 1.4 talks about his children being believers, but the word can be translated also faithful or trustworthy. It's talking not actually, you know, has everyone in his, in his home been converted, but rather what it's getting after is, are they people who are truly following, faithful to their dad and to his leadership? One more strike and I'm out. It also says, uh, the 13th trait, not a recent convert. It means he's not to be newly planted. You want to see somebody who's kind of weathered some storms and is tested and has been broken by some of the hard things in life to show the tested genuineness of his faith. The 14th trait is well thought of by outsiders. There in verse 7. Now it's not saying that nobody could falsely accuse him or think ill of him. Otherwise Jesus and the Apostle Paul wouldn't be qualified. But the point is that the false accusations don't really stick because of what his character is. I think of 1 Timothy 3 when it talks about people accusing a good Christian. Now the last trait I wanted to mention isn't here from 1 Timothy 3, it's from Titus, but the trait is not arrogant. He's not somebody who's been sitting back waiting for the big seat, but rather somebody who's willingly serving in behind-the-scenes role, deeply aware of his own fallen nature, his own sinfulness, and his own need for grace. So, So that's the list. Now, with with a list like this, kind of what we're doing as a church, and I know this analogy doesn't hold up perfectly, but kind of what we're doing is picking a dad for the church. Yeah, we're not children, I get it. We're all adults, so I'm not meaning this in a pejorative way. I just mean it in the sense that a father's job is to lead and to care for and shepherd and teach and protect his family 
And so we're calling for somebody to do that. And the scriptures do call us to honor, obey, and follow their example. I said us. I mean me, too. Because there may arise a situation when I need to be under the care of my elders. They need to be speaking into my life and directing me. So we need to be picking someone who we say, this is the right man to be the dad of this church. And these qualifications really lay out how we should be looking for that dad. This is the Word of God. It's the Bible. It's what has told us the good news about Jesus Christ. It's told us about our own sin. It's told us about how Jesus redeemed us through His blood, about how we can be forgiven and reconciled to God through faith. It's this Bible that's told us that. And if we're going to trust this Bible for truths like that, we need to be trusting it when it tells us the types of people we should have as elders and overseers within our church. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we do come to you aware of our need for you. Yes, we are thinking in a very specific way about elders and overseers of our church. But your word speaks to so much. We want to follow it in the big things and the little things because it is, it is life for us. So use this word and I pray that as the members of this church take time in the coming weeks to commend uh, various men as elders of this church and even commend men and women as deacons of this church, you would help us to allow your word to guide us and put the right people in place to lead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.